Colossians chapter 3, Paul is uh, now dealing in the practical aspects of the doctrine that he has uh, laid out concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ in the first two chapters fully and then the first four verses of chapter 3. In verse 5, of course, as we began last time, Paul began to deal with how we apply that doctrine, how we apply the doctrine of Jesus Christ to our lives. And so he begins in verse 5, and we're going to read verses 5 through 11, but we're going to study, last week we studied verses 5 through 7, today we'll look at verses 8 through 11. But let's read the whole passage, or at least verses 5 through 11, in context so that we can understand fully what is being said by Paul. He said, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Now don't forget that that therefore points us right back to the first four verses that deal with if you have then been risen with Christ. If you then be risen with Christ, you're seeking those things which are above, where Christ sits, set your affection, you're setting your affection on things above. You are dead, you know that you're dead, but your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Well, mortify therefore. Because of that, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and, con- and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when you lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, where there, uh, where there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So at the onset of last week's study, as we began to look at Paul's practical portion of his letter to the Colossian church, I mentioned that he started his message with a rather violent statement. He said, mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. The word mortify means put to death. Bring to death your members which are upon the earth. And this was more than just a statement. It was a demand. Even still, it was a command. Inspired by the Holy Spirit through the prophet, or I should say through the apostle. And this was an apostolic word to the church. Mortify therefore your members. But now there is a second demand that is given. And it's nearly as violent. He says, put off all these. In other words, strip off the sins that enslave 
the emotions, and the tongue. And the, the intended picture here is of stripping off or ripping off as clothing deep-seated emotions and words, deep-seated attitudes. I would use the word feelings, but it's not about feelings. It's about attitudes. Attitudes that come out in our lives. Reactions and thoughts are attitudes against other people, other persons, or other uh, individuals. And Paul says, but now you also put off all these. And once again, the picture is about what you're wearing and how you wear it. Anger, wrath, malice. Let's begin with those three. So the Apostle Paul moved from warning about the sensual sins, fornication and uncleanness and inordinate affection and so on and so forth. He moves from the sensual sins that, that needed to be put to death. Notice the understanding here. They needed to be put to death. And he moves to exhorting the church now to put off or to strip off or to rip off the more social sins. The first set of garments, so to speak, would be anger, wrath, and malice. And if we're using the analogy of clothing, consider these sins to be the old man's rags. His stained and tattered attire, which can actually also be called habits. Habits. Now, the dictionary defines the word habit as a behavior pattern acquired by frequent repetition. A behavior pattern acquired by frequent repetition. But that's not, that's not the only definition for a habit. The second definition is this. Clothing. Particularly a costume characteristic of a calling or of a rank or of a function. For instance, a Catholic nun wears what is called a habit. Primarily, we have, you know, our, our thoughts is that the, the habit is what they wear on their head, the, the headwear, uh, and they're different types for different orders. You have some that look just like a veil, and others that look like the flying nun, you know. Remember, anybody remember that TV program? Okay. You guys are really old. Okay. But we call, they call actually the whole outfit the habit. It's clothing. But it's not just there. I mean, for example, you know, just in, in other parts of society and stuff, there's something called a writing habit that is a costume uh, sometimes worn when horseback riding or e equestrian uh, riding and all. But it's a, it's a word used for clothing. And therefore, we can think legitimately of the old man's habit or the old man's habits, his habitual bad behavior as, as his clothes. He wears these evil habits as the characteristic clothing of his evil calling. Now, that is a very vile, disgusting, and despicable wardrobe to be wearing. 
And Paul tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to put them off, to strip them off, even to rip them off. Now, according to the apostle, we are not to be seen wearing any of the old man's rags. That is not what we're supposed to be wearing. The habits characteristic of him. We are to remove them under a clear command and imperative as the Greek language emphasizes. It may say put off, but it's a stronger statement in the Greek. We must deliberately dissociate and separate ourselves of those evil habits acquired from our Adamic nature. The nature that we received when we were born because we were all born in sin. Every one of us here. Whether you want to believe that or not, we were all born in sin. Now, bear with me when I say this, but you see, not one of us, not one of us was born with any evil habits. Oh, listen, when we were all born, you know, people were standing around windows looking at us and said, oh, look how beautiful they are. You're born and you look like a, you know, a dried prune sometimes. And people say, oh, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Can you imagine that little baby looking up and going, Pah! that would have been evil. Child never did, th- th- did that. Because we weren't born with any evil habits. We have put on every evil habit that we have. We put it on. We've learned it from somewhere, parents. Just kidding. Well, maybe not. Sorry, not sorry. You know, have you heard that thing? (laughs) Whatever that means. I'm trying it out. (sighs) Folks, we have put on every evil habit we have. We put them on. We've chosen to put them on. We grow in them. Then we we come to the realization that the things that we do are evil. In the flesh, in the fleshly nature of man. We have put them on, and now we must put them off. And it is only by the power provided by the Holy Spirit that we are able to do so. And it wasn't only in the church of Colossae that that these issues were brought up to be dealt with. Uh, Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'd like for you to keep a bookmark there because we're going to come back a few times to Ephesians chapter 4, but here in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 24, notice how similar the things that Paul says to the Colossians, he says to the Ephesians. Now, if you've been with us any amount of time in the book of Colossians, you realize that Colossians and Ephesians have very much the same uh, content. Just uh, in Ephesians, it's it's, it's a little more elaborate. But here in verse 24, he says, "...and that you put on the new man." which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying. Now that's one of the sins that we're dealing with today. That's in verse 9 of our text. Wherefore, putting away lying, speaking every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Now there's an interesting thing. Be angry and sin not. We understand from the the context here 
But there are times that we need to be angered at certain things like having a righteous indignation about it. That's what some people call that anger, a righteous indignation. Being angry at sin, being angry at the things that are done against God or against the Lord. But notice that he says, be angry and sin not. And then he elaborates and says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't let the sun go down upon your now built up anger. That has gone beyond the anger that is righteous indignation. And then he even goes further and says, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor working with his hands the things or the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that, that needeth. I want to stop there for just a moment. I, 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 this was impressed on my heart last night as I was reading this. What the Lord is telling us is he's, don't go out and steal things that belong to somebody else. You know, we're called not to steal. It's, it's a commandment, isn't it? This is one of the commandments that we dealt with uh, in, in the ten that were given in the Old Testament. Thou shalt not steal. But then Paul, again, makes it very clear. He says, but rather let him labor, work, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Do you notice that he doesn't put the emphasis on, well, work so that you can have. Work so that you can give to others. One of my readings this morning in, in, in the scriptures was, was from 1 John chapter 3, and, and there in verses 16 through 18, John writes, hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's goods, or this world's good, and, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? And then he says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's not just love in word. There's a reason why the Lord prospers us. And he prospers us with, with, with tremendous, he prospers us with, with, with tremendous blessing so that we can continually bless others. So that, that's something that, that we need to take with us here as, you know, just as an added blessing to us. But then he goes on as we get back to the sins. He says, let no com corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, <clears throat> but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. So to the Colossians and then to the Ephesians, he is dealing with those things that need to be put off, to be put away. And he does the same with the Galatian churches. The churches in Galatians uh, chapter 5, uh, remember Galatia is not so much a city as it was a, a, a region uh, that contained many different churches. The letter that Paul wrote to them was to be passed around to these churches. So in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, which we read last week, it says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath. Now the word wrath here is the word thumos, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. It's a little different kind of wrath than we talked about last week in the wrath of God. That is the word uh, orge. And then he goes on and talks about strife and seditions and heresies, mentions envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, 
that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, folks, Paul was not one that issued out uh, uh, threats that, 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 that meant nothing. Paul never issued out these uh, kinds of um, vain threats. Whenever he would say something, he meant it. This does not come out of the mind of Paul. It comes out of the heart of God through his servant. So I emphasize that here. These are serious matters to deal with. So to the Colossians, going back to our text, Paul begins with a sin of anger. And interestingly enough, the Greek word orge is used as it was for wrath in verse 6. If you remember, we talked a little bit about this last week. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. And as I mentioned last time, orge, the word for anger, and, or wrath and anger now, meant a decisive anger. It meant uh, an anger that comes through thoughtful deliberation. As, as applied to God himself, it was an anger that uh, would judge injustice, an anger that would judge sin, an anger that would judge that which needed to be judged, as it were. So it was a thoughtful, deliberate, and decisive anger. That is the wrath of God. And though we might have thought about it, it wasn't used exclusively for the anger or wrath of God himself. When used by, uh, for God, by the way, it is done so with the understanding that the Lord is incomparable in his justice as well as in his mercy. And when used of man, most of the time it speaks of the baser instincts that man has put on himself. So the orge mentioned here in verse 8 then refers to habitual anger. It refers to habitual anger, the settled sort of anger that makes some people so difficult to live with and work with and makes them lash out at all who may offend them. It includes within its scope the deliberate planning of revenge. Now let me just say, the deliberate planning is just, the, is just step one. Because we have three words here that we have to deal with. We have to deal with anger, wrath, and malice. Each one is pro progressively worse. So understand that in the first attitude, there's just the deliberate planning, the thought, the seed of revenge. It is the attitude of ill will that some people take pleasure in towards others. Anger, orge, then becomes wrath, thumos. Now, thumos is spelled in the Greek, T-H-Y-M-O-S. The Y is always pronounced in the Greek as a U. Uh, so it's thumos. So anger then becomes wrath when we develop an unforgiving spirit. When we develop an unforgiving spirit, we've gotten to a point where, and I speak of professing believers or believers, we can get to a point where we become so angered at someone that we have the thought of saying this. 
You know, I can forgive a lot of people, but I can't forgive that. That's a very dangerous area to walk in. That you cannot forgive because somebody has wronged you, whether purposely or not. then that's where that seed begins to grow for revenge. Thumos comes from a Greek word that means a burning passion. Leading to thumos, which is a fierceness, an indignation, and a wrath. The word wrath suggests the boiling up of hot temper in sudden violent rage. So notice now the progression from anger to wrath. It's gotten worse. It's hard to swallow, but I have to say that it happens to all of us at one time or another. All of a sudden we we explode. It even surprises us from time to time. We surprise ourselves. Whoa, where did that come from? I've known people who normally are pretty reserved in their words and actions suddenly say and do things that they themselves never thought they'd say or do. But we're not alone. We may not want to admit it, but we've all gone through it at one point or another in our lives. But again, we're not alone. I want you to consider Moses who exhibited this flash of temper. That's another good way of describing the word wrath. Moses exhibited this flash of temper even before the Lord God himself. And this after the people had complained that there was no water in the desert of Zin. When they arrived there, there was no water. Now up to this point, the Lord had been meeting their every need. So the Lord commanded Moses then to speak to the rock there, there in the desert of Zin. And in Numbers chapter 20, verses 7 through 12, we are given the account. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye... As leaders, ye mean, of course, together, unto the rock before their eyes. Moses and Aaron were to speak to the rock before their eyes, before the eyes of the congregation, before the eyes of the children of Israel. And it shall give forth his his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord. So far, so good. Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. By the way, and I need to interject this very quickly because I've already mentioned the rock a couple of times, and you'll notice it says the rock, not a rock. 
because the indication in that is that this is the rock who is Christ. This is the rock who is Christ. Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Now, more than likely, this is Moses. Could have even been Aaron, but it was Moses. Here now, you rebels. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? Whoa, where did that come from? This is being said in anger. Must we fetch you out, uh, water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. The water came out abundantly. The congregation drank. And their beasts also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because you believed me not, because ye, the two of you. But was he just talking about them? The people also. Why? Because all they did was complain. Because ye believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Their anger misrepresented God before the people. Therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. And Moses was utterly exasperated with a constant nagging and bickering and complaining and murmuring of the Israelites. And he exploded. He exploded. One of the meekest men in the scriptures. Probably the meekest man in the scriptures. Next to Jesus. That flash of temper. That wrath. Cost him dearly. It kept him. Out of the promised land. And just as anger leads to wrath, this sort of wrath then leads to malice. Malice in the Greek is kakia. If wrath is a flash of temper, then malice is the fostering the nurturing, the cultivating of that wrathful temper. In a word, it is a hatred that lasts on and on and grows deeper. You nurture it. You cultivate it. In other words, you're feeding it. And you're growing it. And building it up inside of you. Now, let's remember that Paul wrote this to believers to put off these things. The word itself suggests malignity or maligning. In other words, the slandering, the defaming, and the disparaging of a person with a desire or intent to injure. So now the seed of revenge has grown with the intent to injure. The person who wears this habit 
nurses grudges against other people. As a man named Shimei nursed a grudge against David the king. Very quickly, in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 5 through 11, is this account of a man that was of the house of Saul held a grudge against David because he considered that David actually stole the throne from Saul. And that David, being a man of blood, should be judged for it. It says in verse 5, And when King David came to Bahurim, Behold, thence came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came forth and cursed, still as he came. In other words, as he came out of the house, he was cursing David, and he was cursing David loudly, and he kept cursing David until he got close enough to do this. And he cast stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. I mean, he is, I mean, it's more than likely, like if he lived at a stone quarry and he's just picking up every rock that he can find and he's throwing at David and his men. And thus Shimei, when when he cursed, and thus said Shimei, when he cursed, come out, come out, thou thou bloody man and and thou man of Belial. The, The Lord hath returned upon thee all the blood of the house of Saul in whose stead thou hast reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom thy son. Now that wasn't fully true. Even though Absalom wanted to usurp David's authority. And then he said, Behold, thou art taken in thy mischief, because thou art a bloody man. And then said Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, unto the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over, I pray thee, and take off his head. And the king said, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord hath said unto him, Curse David. Who shall then say, Wherefore hast thou done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son, or behold, comma, my son, which came forth of my bowels, seeketh my life. Absalom. How much more now may this Benjamite do it? Let him alone, and let him curse. For the Lord hath bidden bidden him. What a contrast. David knew exactly everything that he had done in his life. David carried these things with him the rest of his life. Not to say that he didn't believe in the forgiveness of God, because even when he sinned, the prophet told him, you're forgiven, but... There are consequences, consequences to be had. And David understood that always. He understood what was going on as he got later in life in his own 
uh, reign. And his own son now was seeking to take his kingdom. How painful that must have been for David. Yet now we see how humble he was. Take to heart, if you will, the exhortations of Paul to the churches to which he wrote. As he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, about Christ being our Passover, he says, Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. Purge it out. Clean it out. What have we heard? Mortify, therefore, your members. Put off all these. Here Paul says, purge out, therefore the old leaven, using certainly the illustration of, of, uh, of the Jewish household that would clean out all leaven during the time of Passover, and they still do that today. That you may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. Leaven being really a type of sin, but we are to be without sin, we are to be unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither, and notice this, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. How that must have arisen in the church of Corinth in those days. They had a lot of problems if you studied the book of Corinthians. And that was probably one of them. And then there was the statement of Paul to the Ephesians. We hopefully kept our bookmarks there, Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32. Because here Paul tells them, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, there are those two words, and clamor, which means, you know, crying out like Shimei. And evil speaking be put away from you. Mortify, put off, put away, purge out, and put away from you with all malice. In other words, the whole progression of anger, wrath, and malice, put it away from you. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And not only does Paul encourage us and really exhort us to forgive one another, as, uh, as he says, for Christ's sake has forgiven you, Jesus himself said, you need to forgive as I have forgiven you. Because if you do not forgive, forgive as I have forgiven you, you will not be forgiven. The Apostle Peter would also chime in on this when he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, Wherefore, laying aside all malice, lay it aside. We mortify certain things, we put, we put off things like stripping off certain garments, we, we purge away as we, as we clean out the leaven in our lives, and we are to lay aside all malice and all guile.
insincerity, hypocrisies, and envies, and all evil speakings. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. He's not saying that we are to go back to be like babies, you know, when we make big mistakes. He was saying, listen, we always have the sincere milk of the word with us. We should desire that. In our own hearts, we can go back to square one, at least to, to remember how we are to live as newborn believers in Jesus Christ. So that you may grow. So the next three sins that Paul points to as being habits or garments that need to be stripped off are found in verses 8 and 9. Blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, and lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. Now the word blasphemy is transliterated directly from the Greek blasphemia. And it indicates a type of speech that slanders, that insults, that hurts, that injures, and shows contempt. Now, now there are two kinds of blasphemy. The first type, which, uh, which we are more familiar with, is a blasphemy that defames the name of God. We oftentimes see it in Scripture as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But it is a blasphemy that actually we see both types being used by the, by the scribes and the Pharisees and even the Sadducees against Jesus. But I'll get back to that in a moment. A blasphemy that defames the name of God. We, we're, we're more familiar with that. It is not just taking his name in vain, but it is to mis- misrepresent the Lord in effect to hate him. And in fact, that's what Moses did when he struck the rock twice. He misrepresented God, and in effect, he was showing his anger and hatred toward God. If the rock is the rock that is representative of Christ, who gives us everything that we need, the source of all life, the source of all water, the source of all food, the source of everything in our life as believers today, then we are striking at the very one who died on our behalf. That's blasphemy. Now, as for the second type, blasphemy against, against man, which Paul mentions here. And again, the context would be very clear. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy. It's all toward man. It carries the idea of slander and of speaking to detract from another's reputation. Something that injures another person's name. It was that same spirit that motivated the rabbis, the scribes, and the Pharisees to be ever on the lookout for an opportunity to say something derogatory about the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the end, when they could find nothing against him but saw rather that the Lord's popularity was growing, they had him arrested and then sought false witnesses to lie about him. You notice that the progression continues? Anger gets worse in wrath. Wrath gets worse in malice. Malice gets worse worse in, in blasphemy. Blasphemy begins to even expand even greater in, in, in the sense of uh, 
a filthy communication from the mouth leading to the lying. Now, sometimes even in the church, we can blaspheme another believer when statements are made about them that are not true. You know, if another person does not have a theological position as great or as wonderful as our own, as some think, what, what gives us the right to say that they're of Satan? But people do that all the time. See it on the internet or you see it on, on YouTube, you know. Somebody holds a, a little bit of a different uh, theological position. All of a sudden, if, because they don't believe like us, they're of Satan. Sounds like the progressive liberal Democrats of today in, the, in, in politics. You don't agree with them, but I mean, you're, you're, just, you're just from the gates of hell. How sad that is. It would be blasphemy of a brother or sister in Christ. How, where do we come off judging that way? Now understand this. I mean, you know, if we're talking about people that go and attend the church of Satan, because there are churches of Satan, don't you think they're of Satan? Well, probably so. That would just be stating fact. But if a person sincerely believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, though we may differ, you know, like the Calvinist Arminius thing. That is, by the way, where people have said, you know, because he believes so, so he must be of Satan. <laughs> That's been argued for thousands of years, actually. It's about time to stop it. It's about time to believe God's word, what it says. Quit adding to it. But let's not, let's not defame, let's not blaspheme a brother or sister in Christ. And then there's filthy communication out of your mouth. In a word, it is to speak to defile. The Greek word aiskrologia, or vile conversation, means simple, foul speaking and obscene speech. A believer should never be guilty of telling smutty stories. He should never use bad language. Hate to say this, but you know, we, we, we've known people that, you know, they go to church on Sunday, they go to Bible, you know, they go to Sunday school, you know, they do all the things that they do on a Sunday, and then from Monday to Saturday, they feel it's their, uh, you know, their uh, privilege to go and, oh, hey, I want to tell you a story. Come here. You got to hide about telling me. I'm not sure I want to hear it. A believer in Jesus Christ should never tell smutty stories. He should never use bad language. Think for a moment of Simon Peter in the courtyard of the high priest, the high priest's palace, following Jesus as they've taken him, arrested him, tried him illegally at night. <coughs> Excuse me. In Matthew 26, verse 69. Now Peter sat without in the palace. In other words, he sat outside of the palace. Notice how he goes in. Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. 
That's a lie. <clears throat> and when he was gone out into the porch, now he enters in. Another maid saw him <clears throat> and said unto them that were there, <clears throat> This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath. He swore, I do not know the man. Wow. That's an even greater lie. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. The way you speak. Now, Peter was from Capernaum, which was up north. That would be like living in the United States and being from the south, the south having that little bit of south, southern speaking, you know. And everybody knew that uh, his disciples were mostly from the Galilee region. They were fishermen. Some of them. And then he began he to curse and swear. Notice, to curse and to swear, saying, I, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus which said unto him before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice, three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. The foul oaths of the fisherman poured out of his mouth. But after that, the people that heard him were convinced. Listen, they were convinced no disciple of Jesus Christ would talk like that. Wow. No disciple of Jesus Christ would talk with that kind of language, would speak with those kinds of words. But we can also speak to defraud. Through lying. But verse 9 tells us we're not to tell lies. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. The lie, someone said once, the lie is the idiom of Satan's language. The lie is the idiom of Satan's language. Jesus said of Satan that he was a liar from the beginning. And he told all of his detractors that they were of their father, the devil. Now, he was speaking to scribes and Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil. He was a liar from the beginning and has always been a liar. Lying has become a way of life for millions of people. Children lie to parents, oftentimes without conscience. Business people often lie to each other and especially to their customers. And of course, big government lies routinely to the public and its citizens. We've seen a good object lesson of that in this previous, in this past week. 
of impeachment inquiry. How can they all be right? How can they all be truthful? Has America awakened yet to the fact that two sides in this particular case cannot all be right? Somebody's telling lies. But notice again, verse 9. Lie not one to another, seeing, now here it is, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Now he's saying, listen, when you came to Christ, you have put off. You have put off, you have taken off, you have stripped off, you have ripped off the old man with his deeds. The old clothing of the old life, you've taken it off and have put on the new man. Which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. After the image of Christ who created us. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Within this text we find the three strong reasons as to why we are to strip off the sins of emotions and tongue. Because we have put off the old man. We have put on the new man. And we are all one body in Christ Jesus. One body. We confirm that every month when we gather together and have a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice. And we say, hey, we're one in Christ. When we remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to be adopted as children, sons and daughters of God. We were not that before we came to Christ. We were children of disobedience. We were children of the devil. We are all, every one of us who believes, children of God. We belong to the same family, the family of God. And therefore, there is no place for reacting against each other. No place for anger. No place for wrath, malice, lying, blasphemous, insulting, hurtful talk. Nor room for filthy talk. And then take note, if you will, how Scripture covers everything. Paul, here in this Scripture, covers everything that could possibly cause attitudes and feelings and divisions between us. Notice what he says. He says in verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, where there is neither any of these things. All of these things divide. All of them, race and birth, neither Greek nor Jew. Religion and ritual, neither circumcision or uncircumcision. Neither education and culture, barbarian nor Scythian, social class and wealth, bond and free. But Christ is all. All of us are in Christ who are believers in Jesus Christ. None of these divisions can divide us. We just have to look around. We come from different backgrounds, different nations, different countries, 
different languages, but here we are, one in Christ. Therefore, put off these things and put on Christ. Let me close with Ephesians chapter 4. Just to fill in some of the gaps from the uh, previous mentions of Ephesians. In fact, I want to read it to you. I wanted to begin in verse 13. To build on this is, is just to remember that God gave gifts to the church. And he mentions those in verse 11 giving some apostles and prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And then verse 13, and here we'll start. Till we all come, notice, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the, of the Son of God unto a perfect man. In other words, unto a complete man. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. To lie to you. Just as the Gnostics lied to the Colossians. Just as the Gnostics began to lie to all the churches in that region. He says, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Being one in Christ, we grow. Being one in Christ, we build. And we build well. The solid foundation being Christ himself. We are to build one another up in love. We are to encourage one another. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of our mouth and lying does not build anyone up. It tears down. And I just want to close with verses 21 through 24. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation or conduct the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. If we're talking about old rags and clothing, they stink, is what Paul is saying. Then he says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, the new clothes, the new habit, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Everything else is in unrighteousness and false holiness. That would be superficial holiness. 
Something done on the outside, but the inside. Sound familiar? Jesus said of the scribes and Pharisees, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. On the outside you look so holy, but on the inside you're just dead men's bones. You are empty tombs. A true believer in Jesus Christ is not empty. We are filled, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, filled with the understanding of who Jesus Christ is, filled with the Word of God. We are to be filled with all that which is good and right and just and true. That means we are filled with Jesus Christ.